teachers, as they teach our kids, and may pray that God would give them hearts that enable them to believe so that they may know him as Lord and Savior. Pray for our teachers even more because there's a couple of kids that seem to know all the answers. So, and if you taught Sunday school, you know what that's like. I was that kid. All right. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Acts chapter 14. My name is Pastor Nate. I'm the lead pastor here at Knollwood. We continue to pray for Pastor Matt as he's on, well, he should be somewhere near here uh, as he's been on vacation. But as you open there to page uh, 538 in that blue Bible in the chair in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, we really encourage you to take that one and bring it home and read it. Start with the Gospel of John and study it. If you have any questions, we'd love to talk about God's Word uh, here at Knollwood. And uh, so, yeah, just please read it. But as you open there, uh, I like history. I've said this before. I enjoy studying it, watching it, whatever it may be. And something that has always boggled my mind is during World War II, you see these men being piled into these smaller boats, their landing crafts. And as they're going through the boats, you can see how they're getting a little seasick and there's some tensions rising. And as they get to this beach of Normandy or whatever beach it was that that boat was going to, the gate falls down and they run out. But here's the thing. As they're running out, there's a fire of of bullets being shot at them, artillery, mortars, a whole nine yards happening at them. And here's the question that always boggled my mind as I'm watching that. Why? What in the world would get these men, and let me be honest, a lot of them were about significantly younger than I am now, and we would call them children. Why would they jump off of this boat knowing the outcome of what is going to happen? Why? How? And that's what I was thinking of today as I was reading through Acts chapter 14. It could have been patriotism or duty or some sort of ideological beliefs or camaraderieship or loyalty about the other guy beside them. It could have been personal conviction. Maybe it was their training. Maybe it was just this sense of wanting to be part of history. We don't really know. But I do know this. As I look at chapter Acts, Acts chapter 13, or 14, sorry, the Apostle Paul is entering into a circumstance where he's going to be entering into an onslaught, knowing the outcome. We see in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Every time the Apostle Paul goes out to preach, every time he goes to another city, every time he knows that he's going to suffer, yet he continues to do that. Why? How? And that's what we'll be looking at as we look at Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 20. As we see Paul and Barnabas face an increasing persecution as they continue to preach the gospel in this town called Iconium and again in Lystra, we see how Paul preaches the gospel regardless of the outcome. But why does he? 
Follow along with me. I'll be starting in verse 1 of chapter 14. It says this. The word of the Lord says this. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers, against their brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when when an attempt was made by both the Jews and the Gentiles with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and they, were, they continued to preach the gospel. In verse 8, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet, and he was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be, uh, to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began to walk. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done, they lifted up their voice, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief of speakers. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought ox and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from the heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowd, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Awesome God, we just thank you for this chance we have to continue to worship you through the preaching and the listening of your word. I pray, the Lord, that you are indeed glorified. I pray that you would even use the preaching of your word in churches like Chelsea Green right now, that your word may go forth and that it wouldn't return in vain. So, dear Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified and I want to speak of you and and praise you. And I can't do this on my own, so by your spirit, will you make this turn out well? Use this sermon, Lord, to bring glory to your name joy to your people, and salvation to the lost, and amen. In verses 1 to 7, we see this point of regardless of the division, regardless of the division. In verse 1, Paul and Barnabas shake up the sands, of the, sands off the sandals as they walk from one place to the next, this next place called Iconium. They go to a place where is in southwest Asia Minor. We call this Galatia. It's the modern-day Turkey area. 
And the first place that they go to is this Jewish synagogue. And we see this, again, as a pattern throughout Paul's travels, throughout his missionary journeys. He always goes to the synagogue first. And as we have said, there's a reason why. There's already a foundation laid. The word of God is still the word of God. So he assumes. So he goes there, preaching. And he speaks in such a way that many people are saved. Now, here's the question. Is it the speaking that he does that saves people? And the answer before you answer is no. Because that's not what saves people. As Pastor Chris pointed out last week in Acts chapter 13, 48, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So the person who does the saving is God. Which brings a lot of refresh relief for those of us who speak. And we will actually see in Acts 17 that even though Paul preaches probably one of the best sermons you'll ever hear, he gets laughed at and mocked. So he is a great orator, a great arguer, great apologetics, knows his word, knows his culture, Yet it's not his words that save. So it's not the way someone speaks that saves, but God who saves. And however, this does not mean that we don't seek to get better at proclaiming the gospel, okay? It doesn't mean that we get to sit there and just like, great, that means I don't have to get better at this. You know, I still remember one time a few years ago, I was... Uh, I was encouraged strongly by one of my elders in a previous church to get better at preaching because that's how bad I was. <laughs> and uh, I did. I went and took some classes and whatnot. And I remember the first sermon I got, I preached, a friend of mine, she meets me at the door and she says, wow, that is so much better. And I went, wow, thank you for your encouragement. <laughs> it doesn't mean we don't get be- seek to get better at it. But it is God who saves, not our words. Because we see a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed, and God continues to call people to himself from all backgrounds as he grows his church by the faithful witness of his people. It's a reminder that the gospel unites his people. No longer, as we were reading, as Maris read for us, no longer are there Jews or Greeks anymore. Now they are sons and daughters of the living God. And that, that is what unites them. And what do they believe? They believe the gospel. That's what's uniting. I was having this conversation with one of my children this week as she was trying to expand on how we are to be united in Christ. And I said, the main question, and I, I get that, yes, 100%, we are to be united. God calls his church to be united. But you have to ask the follow-up question, in what? They were united in the gospel. They understood what the gospel was, and that is what united them. They didn't compromise. They understood that Christ died for their sins and that he rose again. That Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross. Why? To die in our place. He died in a substitutionary death for our sin, even though he was sinless but that he also rose again, and that whoever believes in him and who repents of their sin will be saved. So the question for you as you sit there is, is that what you believe? 
Is the question for us as a church, is, is, is that what unites us? But as much as the gospel creates a new family, as we just saw with Jews and, and Greeks coming together, as Jesus, brings, uh, as Jesus brings people together and as he serves as the head of the family, the gospel, believe it or not, also divides. And we see that because in verse 2, he said, but the unbelieving Jews. And even though many believe and many people God is calling to himself, there's some who don't. And the irony in this statement is that the gospel first goes to the Jews, yet they are also the ones that first reject. And in response, they begin to stir the pot. You like that, right? As people, like, they really don't like something, what do they do? They kind of get in behind the scenes and they kind of just start meddling, right? They kind of just start, you know, spreading some of the little lies and deceits. They start gossiping. Did you hear that the pastor? They stir up the Gentiles and poison their minds. They cause the people's attitudes to be bad by spreading dissent and spreading rumors or false accusations and inciting opposition against Paul and Barnabas. So there is a reason why God hates gossip because it's not a reflection of that new creation we are called to be. It's a reflection of the old self, not the new self, and what's truly in our hearts. And the outcome of this is in verse 3. They remain for a long time because the, the people there were stirring up trouble. So how do you counteract that trouble? You need to make sure that the people are rooted and grounded in truth, in the word of God. So they stay with the young believers to withstand the dissent and the rumors and the false accusations so that they may know the truth. And this is the reason why it's so important for us as a people to be people of the word so that we know what is true and what is false. I think sometimes we spend more time watching CNN or Fox News than we do in God's word. I don't care what the news says. I care about what God's word says. Doesn't mean I don't seek to know what's going on in the world, okay? Someone's like, oh, it's ignorant. I'm like, no. <laughs> and as they continued to stay there, Paul and Barnabas speak boldly for the Lord. Meaning that the word boldly means even in the face of danger, even in the face of all that stirring, all that accusations, all of that dissent, all of those rumors, in the midst of all of that danger, they continued to have courage to speak the good news of salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ. It's through these many signs and wonders that, as we see clearly, who's the one who's, doing, who's, the one who's empowering the, the signs and the wonders? It's God. It's not Paul and Barnabas who have some sort of magical gifting. It's God who enables them to do these things. And why does he enable them to do this? Why does Jesus empower them to do these things? So that the message of the gospel is confirmed. It gives these new believers the validation that they need. You know, you just picture it. It's like these guys who are hearing these rumors from the non-believers are like, well, you guys keep saying this about Paul and Barnabas, but they say something else. And they're doing all of this stuff, and all you guys can do is spew garbage. So who are we going to believe? Who is the speaking, the, sorry, speaking the truth? And those signs and the wonders begin to confirm what is true. 
But again, it's why it's so important to be in God's words so we can fight the lies that keep being whispered in our ears. We fight the lies with the greater truth of God's word. But as we see in verse 4, the people of the city were divided because just as much as the gospel unites, because it blows my mind, right, when you look at a church in a multicultural uh, country like Canada, which is built upon immigration, where we have people of different backgrounds coming together, singing the same songs, reading the same word, loving each other, hugging each other, caring for each other. How in the world can that happen when in the other parts of the world they're killing each other just because they belong to another tribe? It's because of the gospel. The gospel unites us. But just as much as the gospel unites us, it also divides as we continue to see. See, God condemns those who cause division within the church but the gospel also divides. And let me explain this. Jesus says himself in Matthew 10, verses 21 to 22, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and the children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. This is a mess, right? This is what the gospel's doing. This is what allegiance to Jesus Christ is doing. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. For those in Christ, we aren't to be the divisive ones, but what happens when you begin to walk closely with the one who's victorious is that you start getting the arrows that are for the one who's the king. If I am exemplifying Christ, they will hate me just as much as they hate Jesus. And that's what's happening. As these new believers, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the apostles teaching them to obey all that God has commanded, they become more like Christ and they become more hated. And because they become more like Christ, you know, one day they were sitting around the couch watching that great show and laughing all, all over the place about the jokes that were being said. And then the next day they meet this guy named Jesus and suddenly they're not laughing at the same jokes anymore. There's a change that happens. And that begins to divide. Why is there that division? Well, because absolute truth is found in the gospel. That divides. We live in a world that says, speak your truth. God's word says, I am the truth. We believe that the gospel message proclaims salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And, well, how dare we say that there's only one way to heaven? We believe, we believe that Jesus is God. And the Jews didn't believe that. The Bible teaches that we are human in our sinful nature and that we need to repent. How dare you tell me that my life is wrong and that I need a Savior? I can save myself. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. And this can cause division. The gospel challenges cultural norms and societal values that contradict the biblical teaching. The Bible is what molds our moral view because it's God's view. And that creates division. And let us not forget about the spiritual aspect of things. I think sometimes we forget that ourselves. I had a great long conversation with Pastor Chris about this this week. 
the spiritual life, the spiritual world is a real thing, and the devil hates the fact that the gospel is being proclaimed. He hates that there's a, a, a victorious king already. And there's a battle between the king, God's kingdom, the kingdom of light, and the kingdom of darkness. And this spiritual warfare can cause uh, division with people as well. And we see the divide growing between those who believe and those who don't. And we see that divide beginning to increase and to grow. Not because of anything that the believers have done, but purely based on the gospel. Because as much as the gospel unites, it also divides. The eventual outcome of how the gospel is dividing is that what's comes uh, that what is within begins to come out. Hate never stays as a thought. Jesus was very clear on that. But it turns into action. When an attempt was made by both Jews, by the Gentiles, sorry, and the Jews, we see in verse 5. And you see, as much as belief in the gospel unites those from all different cultures, unbelief of the gospel also unites. This is an amazing thing. Jews and Gentiles are working together to accomplish a mission. They hate it, the gospel, so much that they unite together. The Jews had no respect at all for the Gentile pagan worship. Yet they were willing to put all of that aside so that they can get rid of the apostles. Think about all the Jewish antipathy towards idolatry and how the Gentiles lived, and, and, and now they are working together. It's amazing how the gospel can also unite all those who are against it. It starts with that mistreatment of speaking against Paul and Barnabas and those insolent and arrogant ways that lead to the people seeking to stone Paul. What's in the heart always comes out. In our words first, and then eventually in our actions. It's why Jesus ties the heart, the sin that's in our hearts to our actions. And in verse 6, they hear about these things, they learn of them, and they fled. And Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Which means it's okay to leave, by the way. I, I've struggled with this myself because you know how much I've suffered living in Canada, right? I'm being sarcastic. I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes as he finishes off. And that's what they do. They leave. The persecution that, that was thought to stop the spread of the gospel only puts gas on an already burning fire. So the gospel seeds have already been planted in Iconium. And Paul and Barnabas are like, yeah, it's getting a little hot in here. We've got to get out of here. But the seeds have already been planted. And who does the watering? God. So they leave to the next one. The persecution that was hoped to stop continues on. But wherever they go, in verse 7, wherever they go, Wherever God's people go, they continue to preach the gospel. And what we see here is that when our op opposition turns life-threatening, Paul and Barnabas leave the town. And this is an example of the, the apostles' willingness to escape persecution if possible. So when facing opposition, do you stay or do you go? Right? I have friends who are missionaries. This is the age-old question of the missionary world. Do you stay or do you go? Some stay. Some go. 
So do you stay or do you go? And I don't think there's a right answer for it. I don't. I think people will come to the different conclusions based on their unique circumstances and their own convictions. And these are things that we have to think about ourselves in our own circumstances. But what's important is understanding that to be a follower of Christ is to count the costs. Jesus taught his disciples to count the cost of following him. And when facing persecution, believers must consider the potential sacrifice involved in staying or leaving, but continue to proclaim the gospel regardless of the outcome. And trust in God's providence in that. Because as believers, we can trust in God's providence and his sovereignty. God is aware of our circumstances. And through faith, we can find comfort and guidance in his wisdom and care. Seeking his will and relying on his strength can provide us with peace and and confidence and even in the midst of persecution. Because in some cases, it's not an opportunity, and we will see that, there is no opportunity to leave. So regardless of the staying or the leaving, we have to continue to trust but regardless of the outcome, we, we have to have an eternal perspective. We see here that the gospel divides and that there's an outcome of that, a persecution, and we need to be ready for those things. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, be reminded of the hope that, ha- that goes ba- past all circumstances so that we may pray with perseverance what God has done. And in verses 8 to 20, we see regardless of the danger, So they move on to another town called Lystra. So Paul and Barnabas move about 32 kilometers southwest of Iconium. And we are introduced to a man that has been crippled since birth. And this is an important observation by Luke because what we're seeing is not just a healing, but a making of new. This is a man who could never walk, never had walked. Yet we see in this amazing text, Paul looks at him intently in verse 9. And seeing that he had the faith to be made well, said in a loud voice so that everybody could hear, stand up on your feet. And he doesn't just stand up. Because the text says he sprang up. You know, you think of like, I'm having a hard time doing the springing up from the ground these days. Knees and all. But my kids can do it. You see a kid just spring up. That's what I'm thinking of with this. There's a new creation that is happening in this life. And God works in an amazing way to open the doors of the gospel to be proclaimed to those who are listening. And he's listening to Paul. And Paul sees the man's faith and how he is listening to the preaching of God's word. But an unexpected outcome happens after this. You think that the outcome would be, oh man, their God must be right. They don't apply it to a God that they never heard about. They're applying what they're seeing to the gods that they already are worshiping. You can imagine the frustration of Paul and Barnabas. They'd just been talking about Jesus Christ who died and rose again and they looked at this man and, and by Jesus empowering them to do that, they say to this man, get up and walk and that's supposed to give evidence for what? The gospel. But again, you see that without God giving new hearts that enable to believe, people cannot be saved. So we pray accordingly, right? But we see here, verse 11 to 13, 
the gods have come down to us like men. Odd statement. But history sheds some light on this. There's actually a poem by a Latin, a, a Latin poem by a guy named Ovid who recounts the legend about two other pagan gods named Jupiter and Mercury disguising themselves as mortals and seeking lodging in the Fagarian hillside country. An elderly couple welcomed them and their house turned into a temple, making them priests. The gods destroyed the houses of all those who reje- sorry, rejected them. See, the crowd is influenced by this legend, so you can kind of have some sort of sympathy to their reaction. And it's not necessarily their reaction that I'm surprised about here. It's what we will see later with Paul and Barnabas. And they don't, these people just don't want to mess it up again. Because who else can make a lame man walk again? It must be a god. And Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on because the crowd is yelling in their own language. I could just picture this. I was laughing to myself. They're like, all these people are like yelling and screaming and they're probably smiling like, they're getting it. No. Because then the priests, uh, the priests of Zeus come. They come to make sacrifices to these ordinary men. And I can't imagine, again, the expression being changed on their face as it goes from probably an excitement to a dread. Because we see the dread in verses 14 to 15. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd. Look at the response that we see of what is happening. And people are prideful. It's sin that, that it's, uh, pride is a sin that is always rearing its ugly head. And, and, it's, and, and here we see two men who, who are seeking to continuously humble themselves before God. How dare we be compared to God, they say. This is a direct contrast to King Herod in chapter 12, who accepted the praise of men. And God judged swiftly. Sorry, swiftly. There's this Latin phrase that is, uh, Latin is not my forte. English is barely my forte. But memento mori, which means remember that you will die. And it was actually whispered by a slave or a servant in the ears of a triumphant Roman general as he would return back from victory. As the procession through the ancient city of Rome They would have all these military parades with all the spoils and all the gains that they would have. And then there would be this this, uh, general who's victorious in the front of it. And then you'd see this slave on the chariot with him, constantly whispering those words in his ear. Remember that you will die. The saying served as a reminder to the general of his mortality and the fleeting nature of success and power. It was intended to keep the general humble and grounded amidst the adulation and the grandeur of this procession. And I was recently listening to a pastor who was arguing against, or or, sorry, arguing for a denomination to make a shift from their denominational stance on a particular issue. And all he kept doing was talking about all the things that he was able to do all the numbers that he was able to do. And you can see the pride that was becoming up within his heart as you're just sitting there listening to the guy. 
And I wish you would have a man that came up to him and whispered those thoughts. And as I think about what Paul's and Barnabas' reaction is to this adulation, all I can think of is and pray about is that my identity, that my identity myself, and I pray this for you too, would be so in Christ that to preach the gospel, to die and be forgotten is more than enough. So look at Paul and Barnabas' response and how much they would have to have been so fixed on Christ in their immediate response this way. They clearly understood who they are and who God is. They understood that even as the people who are proclaiming the gospel, they are no more than rescued sinners, filled with the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the good news. And as we seek to be people of the word, the Holy Spirit will constantly remind us of these things as we spend time in prayer and his word. Listen to the whisper when, they, when things seem to be going well, when people begin to kind of give you flattery. Not encouragement, flattery. You are no more than rescue sinners filled with the Holy Spirit sharing the good news. And Paul and Barnabas were just men in like nature of those in the crowd, and they look at what is happening in horror, refusing to be objects of worship. They are constantly trying to turn the people from a lifeless idols and point them to a living God as the only proper object of worship. The beginning of understanding who you are is clearly in, rooted in understanding who God is. And as they're doing that in verse 15, they're trying to point them from the vain things. What are those vain things? These gods. And Paul points that what, the, the, what they are worshiping is useless and fruitless and empty. And we see this in Isaiah 37, that idols are just the work of men's hands and wood and stone. And these aren't living. They aren't gods. These are just things made by human hands. For these people, it was these idols of Zeus and Hermes who don't have any value or who are, who are alive and bring death. And before we come and start harping on these poor, unintellectual people, let us be reminded that we too have our own idols in our own lives that are vain, and if it be obsession with our appearance, right? How many of us spend more time in front of the mirror than in God's word? The resent relentless pursuits of wealth and possessions, the materialistic consumerism of this endless cycle of acquiring things because, you know, that makes us look good. How about the constant validation and attention through the numbers of likes and followers and comments on social media. Because you know when you post that thing, it doesn't really happen unless you post it, right? I'm being joking. Vain things. We all struggle with vain things. And Paul is seeking to push people away from these things that don't offer any life or any satisfaction to the living God. And he says, stop, all these things lead away from the very thing that will satisfy. So Paul preaches the good news as he continues on, and that good news makes it possible to escape from all the rat race of the vain things that we have in our lives to a living God 
To turn from these vain things is to turn from the idols that you are seeking to be satisfied into the living God who is all satisfying. To have life in the, the living God is to give up the things that you have been devoted that you've been so devoted to that they have taken the place where God can only satisfy. Turning from the living God who created all things. Idolatry is condemned in the Bible because it diminishes the divine to human size which is the mistake that is happening right here. When Paul is identified, Paul and Barnabas are identified as divine. See, when we do this, it makes God dependent on human action and God who is under human control. If there's a God who's under human control, then he's not God. And Paul and Barnabas are preaching the good news to point to a God who isn't dependent on humanity, who isn't controlled by humanity, but who's sovereign and who is the creator. He is big enough to rescue the greatest of sinners. And Paul is proof. So Paul challenges them to stop putting their faith in things that are empty, that are dead, but to put their hope in a living God. So Paul calls them to move from things that don't bring life to a living God, and he defines what that means. What is the living God. He is the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He is not made by our hands out of what we have. He is the one who created all things. And Paul strikes at the people's idolatry. Not only is there only one God, but he is also the creator of everything, not Zeus, not Hermes, not Elon Musk, who seems to be creating everything these days. He is the living God, as we see in verse 16, who, who blessed all people with a beautiful creation. This is God's grace that he has given to all people, regardless of who they are, regardless of them being Christian or not. A couple of weeks ago, we had a beautiful week, right? That's actually more than a couple of weeks ago now, I think. It wasn't just us who are believers that got to experience that. It was Everybody. And we all together got to experience what it meant to be freezing the next day. <laughs> but this is used as a witness, as we see in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. In them he has set a tent for the sun. Or I think of Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so, that, so they are without excuse. Or in Job 12, but ask the beasts and they will teach you and the birds of the heaven, and they will teach you. Oh, the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all those does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of everything living, every living thing, and the breath of all human, of all mankind. You go for a walk, you go for a hike, whatever it may be, and you look at nature and you're like, man, who made this? 
Who created this? I went hunting yesterday. I didn't get anything, so don't ask. But I went hunting yesterday, and I was sitting there just reflecting, going, this is so good. God's creation, the trees, the, the breeze, even the, the rain, the squirrels, lots of squirrels. All of them reflecting who God is. Every part of it. God reveals himself through the Bible, which is called special revelation and general revelation. So to deny God created is to deny how God generally reveals himself. Creation is proof that he is a living God. This is why creation is so important. It's why the church historically has always died on the hills that God created everything and that we didn't come from some haphazard explosion. Because God has purpose in his creation and expresses himself through it to us. And this reminds us as Christians that we have great hope and we long for, for all to know the living God. So we call you to repent of your sin and to put your trust in the living God who created all things who created the heavens and the earth. There is nothing on this planet that will satisfy as a living God will. And in verse 17, you see, God did not bring immediate judgment on those who don't believe him as living God who created all things. Instead, it says, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness, and God constantly shows his goodness through, to everyone, to everyone, regardless of who they are. See, God's goodness is experienced by everyone who enjoys the benefits of living in his creation. If you've been on a vacation or if you've gone for a hike and just was relaxing in the sun, you've experienced this regardless of your salvation. But this also brings a big, huge warning a massive warning. As Romans 1.20 says, no one is without excuse. No one is without excuse. So creation is a great way of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and segueing into that. It is a great tool for us today as it is a biblical way of challenging our culture where it denies God and nature and the meaning of human existence. And in verse 8 to 20, we see the preaching of the gospel isn't always received with fanfare, once again. Now we see the Jews coming up from the cities where Paul and Barnabas were just were. They're probably like, hey, did you hear that Paul went down to this other city? Let's go. It's like they didn't learn the first time. But they begin to rile up the crowds and persuade them, and they drag him out, and they stone him, and they think he's dead. But the disciples come around him, and Paul gets up and he walks back into the city. I don't know if we fully grasped the bravery and determination of this man as he returns into the very city that just stoned him or tried to kill him. If any of us were in his shoes, we might have chosen to turn around and leave instead. His courage and determination should inspire us, but why does he have that? Have we ever shown such bravery when faced with opposition and danger? 
And I think we should pray that we would find ourselves in, in the similar situations, that when we find ourselves in similar situations, that God would give us the strength to do the same. But again, how does he do this? Why does he do this? Because ultimately, it has nothing about his bravery or determination. It's because he had his eyes so fixed on Jesus Christ. That because of that, his heart for his people and those who, were, who did not know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior was so great that he was willing to go through that once again. God has so transformed Paul that he now considers Christianity worth dying for, whereas in the past he saw it as something worth killing for. You see the power of the gospel just in him getting up and going. Because he would have been the person stoning. But now he's willing to die for it. There's a missionary to China, India, and Africa named C.T. Studd, and he said it this way. If Jesus Christ is God, great question. If Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. You see how much the gospel affects even our present life? How about you? So in World War II, we had men stepping off a boat into the rain of gunfire. We don't necessarily know what the reason was. But in Acts 14, we see the Apostle Paul and Barnabas walking into, continuing to preach the gospel as they walked through the gates into these cities, knowing farewell what the outcome is. But we know why they did it. We preach Christ because we, we preach the gospel as rescue sinners filled with the Holy Spirit, sharing the good news, trusting God in the outcome. We need to remember that there will be suffering. In Canada, we miss this suffering. The good news of Jesus is inseparable from facing challenges and tribulation. As followers of Jesus, we should expect opposition and trials. And these difficulties confirm that we're on the right path and, and demonstrate our commitment to living for him. The spread of the gospel involves suffering, but it also ensures that the message reaches those who have not yet trusted in Jesus. If it wasn't for people who are willing to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, we wouldn't be here. We would not. But if Jesus is also worth everything, if he's worth selling everything I have to go buy a field in the middle of nowhere, if he's worth that, then I'm all right with losing my life for his sake, or losing reputation, or losing family. Because even if I lose family, as God, Jesus promised, I will gain a thousandfold. You know what a thousandfold is? It's you. I'm not going to literally get a thousand houses. But I bet if I lose mine for the sake of Jesus Christ, I could find 150. I don't know, but this is important for us, that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. In 1 Peter 4, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. But trials aren't a sign of darkness winning. There's never a doubt as to who's victorious because our God is a living God. He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God and he will one day return in power and might to judge the living and the dead. 
So we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. With Paul, we see a picture of what Jesus is doing. He's building his church in enemy-occupied territory. How would that not be hard? But he's building his church. And Paul is carrying the gospel into the world and suffering as he goes. But we also need to remember the hope we have in the midst of that suffering. So how can Paul preach the gospel regardless of of the outcome? He understands that Jesus Christ is God and that he died for him. He has the Holy Spirit indwelling in him that empowers him and strengthens him to go forward, to get up after he's just been stoned, to walk back into the city that he just got stoned in. So I ask myself this question, and I ask you this today. Do we have the resolve to do the same things of God, to go do what we've been called to do? Because if Jesus is God and he died for me, then there is no sacrifice too great for me to make for him. We preach the gospel as rescued sinners filled with the Holy Spirit, sharing the good news, trusting God in the outcome. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for